Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. I'll be back later to talk about the Crime Writers Association Dagger Awards long lists which have just been announced. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce Barry Forshaw and a new regular feature for Crime Time FM, Barry's Blu-rays. Many of you will know Barry Forshaw as the editor of Crime Time and the crime fiction critic for the Financial Times. His latest book, Crime Fiction, A Reader's Guide, published by No Exit Press, is a brilliantly insightful and entertaining survey of the genre. Barry is a two-time recipient of the Keating Award. And if you've read any of Barry's books on crime fiction, you'll know he's a big film fan too. Barry has written books on Italian cinema, British cinema, British Gothic cinema, film and sex, and BFI guides. So here's Barry, episode one, Barry's Blu-rays. Hello, I'm Barry Forshaw. I'm the editor of Crime Time, and I'm the crime critic for the Financial Times. But I spend a lot of my time doing extras and commentaries for Blu-rays for various companies, such as Arrow, Indicator, Eureka, 88, 101, Studio Canal, and, and American companies as well, such as Severin. I particularly enjoy this. Quite frankly, even if I weren't paid, I shouldn't say this in public, I'd still be happy to do it because it gives me a chance to talk about, generally speaking, favorite films. And I have been doing it uh, and writing uh, essays for booklets for quite a few years. I started, I think the earliest one I did was a complete set of Adam Dalglish Chronicles, the wonderful P.D. James series with Roy Marsden. Uh, which I did for, I think, Network some years ago. This is a series that really needs to be dusted off and looked at again. It's still available, the box set. It's got 16 discs and uh, complete and uncut the whole series with um, Roy Marsden, who P.D. James told me she was very happy with him as as Dalglish. I didn't think he quite captured the air of a, a published poet, if you like, that, that Dalglish is supposed to be, but he was still very good. The uh, creative rebus... Ian Rankin is very envious or was very envious of this series because it was the first long form TV detective series. Uh, because it was done over several hours, the entire book was in there, all the subplots, all the characters, and all done with real intelligence. And so, although there have been other uh, Dalgleishes since, I think P.D. James admirers should be looking up for the Adam Dalgleish Chronicles starring Roy Marsden. That's published by Network. The other sort of vintage detective I did was also for Network, and that was Maygray. Depending on your age, anybody who's listening to this podcast, you'll have a variety of Maygrays in your mind. I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember Rupert Davis. I was very young. He was the first TV Maygray, which creaks a little when one sees that now. And I have to say that I am not a fan of the more recent Maygray, which is played not for comedy, because the actor who's playing it is no longer a comedian, he's an actor as well. So it's rather doer, I think. To me, the best TV Maygray by far is Michael Gambon. Over the years, um, Maygray's been played by many very good actors, Jean Gabin in, in, in France. In fact, there are several French Maygrays. But I think that Gambon is a, such a superb actor that he manages to find that kind of laconic manner for Maygray. The series is extremely well done. You have the eternal problem that you always do when people are speaking English in a foreign country. So that it's rather a jolt when they suddenly mention a place name in the correct and, and pronounce it correctly because they have to. And we find ourselves thinking, well, well, what language are they speaking? I think this was a problem with the TV series Zen, where the, the central character 
Rufus Sewell spoke with an English RP accent. His girlfriend, who was Italian actress, spoke with an Italian accent. People on the street spoke Italian, even though the, the main cast was speaking English. And it was a bit of a dog's dinner. That doesn't happen with the Maigre series of Michael Gambon. Most of the time, you accept that it is this uh, highly intuitive French detective. I met P.D. James, obviously, several times. I was never lucky enough to meet George Simenon. Uh, it's very interesting to watch the series because he's a reminder of how Simenon was many ways the Trojan horse for translated crime fiction. When his books were first published in this country, the translators were not listed. I mean, can you imagine that today, the translator not being listed? So we thought, well, yeah, they're French, but they appear to be English, and we kind of adopted Maigret. That's why I think it's okay to watch a kind of English Maigret, as in the person of Michael Gambon. The Adam Dalgrish Chronicles I've met, I've mentioned, I've mentioned Maigret. And now I'm going to talk about something called The Killing. Now, when I mention The Killing, what do you think I'm talking about? Because if you're a film fan of a certain vintage, you'll be thinking of an early film, the first serious film, the first mature film by the director Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so I suppose we should do them in the correct order. For Arrow, I did uh, the booklet for The Killing, which is the Kubrick film. This is remarkable for a young director. It's one of the great heist movies. All of the characters in it are beautifully delineated. They're all cast from strength. Sterling Hayden is the leader of the, the group. It works like a charm. It's actually quite complex and a little hard at times to follow, but there's no reason why an audience shouldn't have to work hard. And it reminds one when Stanley Kubrick directed Spartacus, that he was only 28 back then. He was a director who developed very early. He was going to leave behind a genre film like The Killing. That was in the past for him once he'd done it. He never went back to pure genre films. Even his science fiction films like 2001 are kind of an explosion or an examination of the science fiction film. But The Killing uh, still works well as, as a very taut heist thriller. The real pleasure in almost any heist movie, and all the best heist movies this is true of, is how will it go wrong? When will it all start to detonate? When will they start falling out? When will people start to die? That's what we wait for. We want to see the commission of the crime and see how well it's done, and it's done superbly well in this. But also there's the Death Watch Beetle, which is going to destroy everyone in it. Now, the other killing, I mentioned there were two killings, is, of course, the famous Danish series, which I also did the booklets for. In fact, I did quite a lot for, for the killing, again, for Arrow, who were always a great supporter of, of uh, Scandinavian crime. They issued all the key Scandinavian crime series. When word started to come about the killing before anyone in Britain had seen it, this strange phenomenon happened where there was a kind of resistance to it among people who, who were intelligent and well-read. But I've, several people said to me, oh, I don't know if I can watch 10, 12 hours of TV with subtitles. And these are people who presumably hadn't been watching all the foreign films that film buffs like me watched, and there was absolutely no problem with subtitles. They'd say, surely it will distract me having to read it all the time. I found myself in the position of having to say when I'd seen The Killing, you really do need to watch this and overcome your reluctance to, to watch something which is, which is uh, subtitled. Obviously, uh, Sarah Lant is, is one of the great modern TV coppers. She is, in fact, influenced by Jane Tennyson, the prime suspect character created by Linda LaPlante. As almost everyone involved with the show told me, director, producer, actors, scriptwriters, they all paid uh, lip service, if you like, to, to Linda LaPlante. They also all like Ruth Randall, I noticed. The show does sometimes give the feeling of being made up 
as it goes along. So it's suspect of the week. And when I interviewed Søren Sveinstrup when he appeared in uh, in England, he did admit that to me. He said, yes, we did make it up as we went along. And then we finally thought we'd better decide who the killer is going to be. I would recommend to those few people in Britain who are interested in crime who haven't seen the killing that they should watch it. Also from Arrow is The Bridge. Well, that's the other, that's the double whammy of uh, foreign crime shows with difficult female detectives, uh, both women who aren't particularly interested or even able to perform social niceties. And in the case of The Bridge, well, we all know about the character played by Sophia Helen, and she is one of the great modern creations, not necessarily autistic. They made a point of not giving a specific definition of what is actually wrong with her, why she doesn't function well with people. But they do convey the fact that that very limitation of her personality is what makes her a very good detective. I've also, while I've been doing my my Blu-ray podcasts, uh, been reaching back into the past for Arrow. Again, I did the, the, the killing on the bridge for a very enterprising Blu-ray company called Powerhouse Indicator. I did a two-camera um, piece on Roger Corman's The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You've probably seen lots of versions of Al Capone. You've probably seen every actor from Robert De Niro to Rod Steiger uh, to Neville Brand who played him and played him well. Jason Robards Jr. is an interesting choice in this film because he's too thin. We all know, if we're interested in crime, what Al Capone looked like. He was fat, he was unprepossessing, he was bald. None of those things are what Jason Robards is but he gives a genuinely operatic, over-the-top performance, particularly when he's brandishing a baseball bat that he's going to exact some justice on somebody who's crossed him. He's, he is very good. Coleman's film, and you'll see this if you, if you bother to pick up the Powerhouse Indicator Blu-ray, has an almost documentary quality. Unusually for this kind of film, real names are used. The real names of almost all the characters are used, which is not usually the case. False names are usually added. There's a character called Aiello, where there is a particularly gruesome killing of this character, Aiello. He's in a train. He's been knocked down by by Al Capone, who then produces a straight razor. Now, what we actually see on the screen is that he places the razor above the throat of the Aiello character. And then off camera, he moves the razor down to where we know the groin of the character is. Nothing is shown. But we realize that this is this is mafia justice of the of the most horrific kind. The film also has a strange strand of black humor. If you know the um, the Edgar Allan Poe films of Roger Corman, you need to know as well that he's an extremely good director of gangster movies. Uh, one of which is Bloody Mama with Shelley Winters as Mar Barker. But probably his best work in the genre is is the St Valentine's Day Massacre. For the company Eureka, I should mention probably as my final one for this session. Another vintage gangster movie, which is This Gun for Hire. And this is a, an interesting movie. It's based on Graham Greene's A Gun for Sale, and it changes it very radically because the uh, psychopathic killer in the Graham Greene novel is, is badly deformed, physically deformed. He's unattractive. This is why he behaves as he does. He's played in the film by Alan Ladd, who is anything but <laughs> physically deformed. And so the whole ethos of Graham Greene's novel changes also because it's set in America. It's extremely well made and Eureka has made something of speciality of dusting off these older films, these older thrillers, 
In fact, it's the first film in which Alan Ladd is paired with Veronica Lake. And I don't think the, the makers realized what they had on their hand in this duo. They quickly realized when the film was so successful and they were reteamed several times. In fact, if you look at the billing of the film, it says Veronica Lake and Robert Preston. Who remembers him in the film? You remember Alan Ladd as, as the um, psychopathic killer. I've done a hell of a lot of uh, this sort of thing. I've done them for British companies and American companies. And it's still a particular pleasure when I'm not re reviewing books. I particularly like doing the extras for these, for these companies. And shortly, I'll talk to you about more of them. The latest Spencer novel from Ace Atkins is available now from No Exit Press. Why not listen to Ace Atkins in conversation with Financial Times crime fiction critic Barry Forshaw on Crime Time FM, Ace on writing Spencer, on Boston Bluntness, on the homegrown threat to the US, Ace Atkins in conversation with Barry Forshaw, episode 9 of the Crime Time FM podcast available now. Someone to watch over me, Ace Atkins, out now. Hi, Paul again. Barry will be back soon with a lively interview with Ace Atkins on his new Spencer novel, Someone to Watch Over Me, so look out for that. Now that short piece I promised you on the Crime Writers Association Dagger Awards long list for 2021. These are among the most prestigious awards for crime writing in the world. There are 11 awards, and fear not, I don't intend to run through every category and every nominee, but I do want to give you a flavour of the lists. It's an amazing list and there's some of the best contemporary writing here. You may have seen that the Diamond Dagger for a consistently strong body of work, a sort of Lifetime Achievement Award, went to Martina Cole. Her 25 novels have attracted millions of readers to her tales of the London underworld, featuring unforgettable female characters. So congratulations to Martina. The Gold Dagger for Best Novel pits newcomers against some heavyweights. Troubled Blood by Robert Galbraith, J.K. Rowling is the mammoth fifth cormorant strike mystery, but it carries its 900 plus pages with aplomb. Published by Sphere. Ellie Griffith's unsuspicious death of a 90-year-old woman soon turns into murder. This is consummate crime writing in the postscript murders, published by Quercus. Gary Disher's gripping outback noir raises the bar for the police procedural, and there's really little peace in a novel of the same name, published by Viper Books. Amit Anwar's gritty, witty, Zack and Jags mystery is a brilliant take on contemporary London, published by Dialogue Books. S.A. Cosby's devastating rural noir, Blacktop Wasteland, is one of the year's must-reads. That comes from Headline. The Ian Fleming Silver Dagger for Best Thriller Award sees retired Rebus refusing to go quietly in Ian Rankin's Song for the Dark Times, published by Orion. Stuart Turton's endlessly inventive historical sea adventure, The Devil and the Dark Water, is published by Raven. And Brit, Chris Whittaker's pitch-perfect American coming-of-age story, The Riffs on To Kill a Mockingbird, called We Begin at the End, is published by Zaffrey. Rod Reynolds' first London-set novel, Blood Red City, gets to the heart of corruption and murder in the city, published by Orenda. And we have Holly Watts' second Casey Benedict investigative journalist novel, The Deadline, which is a thought-provoking and thrilling read. The John Creasy New Blood Dagger, which funnily enough is for newcomers, Features, and forgive me for this, people of Iceland and Eva herself, Eva Björg Eisdottir's 
literary, witty and creepy thriller The Creek on the Stairs, which is published by Arenda. S.R. White's psychological thriller set in the outback, The Hermit, is published by Headline, and John Vircher's powerful account of racism in Pittsburgh in 1995, which has very modern echoes, three-fifths, is published by Pushkin Vertigo. The Superior Books historical dagger includes Vasim Khan's Bombay-set mystery featuring India's first female detective, and this is 1949, by the way, Midnight at the Malabar House, published by Hodder and Stoughton. It's gloriously entertaining stuff. The sixth Giordano Bruno mystery, set in Elizabethan England from S.J. Paris, Stephanie Merritt, is a stroke of genius, making a detective out of The Heretic. Execution is published by HarperCollins. Ben Pastor's seventh Martin Bora mystery sees the soldier detective get mixed up in the 20th of July plot to kill Hitler. A wonderfully literary thriller, published by the Bitter Lemon Press. And Nicola Upson's reimagining of Josephine Tay as a detective in a golden, golden age mystery set on a Cornish island with a modern twist is just a wonderful read. Published by Faber and Faber. The crime fiction in translation dagger tours the world's best and features Volker Kircher's latest Gerian Rat novel, Gerian, seen on sky in Babylon, Berlin, is slow to appreciate the danger of the Nazis, but the truth really starts to hit home in The March Fallen published by Sandstone. D.A. Mishani's complex Israeli psychological thriller makes the most of smoke and mirrors. Three is published by River Run. Mika Niemi's De Kukabea, a Swedish historical philosophical crime novel, is endlessly intriguing and published by Maclose Press. And devastating novella Ellie by Mike Wetzel about the disappearance and then reappearance of a child is just absolutely haunting published by Scribe. The ALCS Gold Dagger for Nonfiction, that's the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society, pits Sue Black's Forensic Science Written in the Bone, Doubleday publishing that one, against Martin Edwards' exploration of the crime writing journey, How Done It, which is published by the Collins Crime Club, and Ravi Samaya's Operation Morda on the Killing of Dag Hammarskjöld, and that's published by Penguin. The Short Story Award features Robert Scragg, Ellie Croft, Dominic Nolan, Victoria Selman, Christopher Fowler and Claire McIntosh, among others. The majority of the stories are drawn from charity collections. Given these are such hard times, the publishers are worthy of a big mention. And for the Crime Publisher of the Year, we have Harper Fiction, Head of Zeus, Faber and Faber, Michael Joseph, Bitter Lemon Press, No Exit Press, Orenda, Pushkin Vertigo, a newcomer Viper Books. For the full list, you can see Barry Forshaw's piece on Crime Time, or you can go to the Crime Writers Association website, of course. Barry's Blu-rays will be back next month. Meanwhile, for your crime fix, don't forget our weekly interviews and Crime Time at www.crimetime.co.uk for news, reviews, features and interviews on crime, fact, fiction and film. If you do order books online, don't forget bookshop.org a real alternative to Amazon, or go to the publisher direct. Both are the best way of ensuring that the publishers themselves and the authors get the money. Thanks to Gem and Son for producing this episode, and thanks to Southgate and Lee for once again allowing us to sample their song Don't Wait for Crime Time FM. Thanks again for listening to Crime Time FM. We'll be back very soon with Henry Porter, Simon Mir, Joe Spain, 
and a whole host of other people that we've lined up and waiting in the wings as we speak. But for now, bye, and thank you very much. Because time won't wait for you